Uh, no, that's a, uh, that's a little irreverent maybe, but I hope you enjoyed it. Um, it's good to see all of you here today. And for those of you who haven't been here the past two Sundays, you already know this. But for those of you who haven't, we're continuing in a series of sermons entitled Welcome to Church. I'm writing these messages to try and establish some common understanding within this new church about some of our core beliefs so that as we move forward in ministry and whatever endeavors the Lord has for us, that we will be, at least for the most part, working off the same page, doctrinally or theologically. That's not to say that we will always agree on everything, or even that you have to agree with me on everything that I've been saying in the last two weeks, but I simply want to present clearly our fundamental values and beliefs here at Upcountry Church so that each person that attends here knows where we're coming from and what our purposes are as we embark on this journey of experiencing life together and living out the gospel. That is the high level and somewhat broad purpose statement that we've adopted here at Upcountry Church. Experiencing life together, living out the gospel. I really like that line because I think it says so much with so few words, but it is a broad statement and one that could be interpreted in many different ways. So. So these sermons will hopefully serve to clarify any potential misunderstandings there, okay? Two weeks ago, we started the Welcome to Church series with the message, We Are Followers of Christ. Last week was We Are Followers of the Word, and if you missed either one of those and would like to hear them, they'll be available on our website, hopefully pretty soon. Our website is being built right now, and I believe the first iteration of that is going to be up pretty soon. I think it's almost complete, and we'll post all of the sermon series on there. Uh, the address of the website, which I think is also on your bulletin, is upcountrychurch.org, and right now just direction to an under construction page. So today, of course, is our third installment in the Welcome to Church series. The message is entitled, We Are Pentecostal. Now, if you don't consider yourself to be Pentecostal, or if you're not sure what being Pentecostal means, <coughs> I can understand and appreciate the fact that you may be feeling really uneasy right now about the sermon. But let me put your mind at ease. The term Pentecostal has been thrown around over the years and defined many different ways by many different groups of people, and that's fine. I'm going to do my level best today to show you what the Bible says about the events at Pentecost in Acts 2 and their ongoing role in our lives today. And I'm going to try and do that in a very honest way in non-spooky way, okay? We'll also explore a bit some of the leading arguments against our point of view of Pentecost so that you'll hopefully have a fairly broad understanding of this doctrine and a firm grasp on what we believe as Pentecostals here, okay? So don't worry. This may be interesting for you. It may be informative for you. It may be even revelatory for some. I don't know. But I don't expect it to be threatening or overbearing at all, all right? As a side note, the term doctrine has become somewhat of a bad word the last few words in the church circles, as the church in Western society has in so many cases uh, attempted to remove polemics uh, from our speech. In other words, anything that polarizes us for or against a particular doctrine or theology, we, they're saying now, they're telling us we should just toss that out the window in favor of an easier message, something more inclusive, something more tolerant, okay? But the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5 that the gospel is offensive. It's intended to be for those who don't follow Christ so that we may humble ourselves and stop rejecting the truth. We'll get into this more in about two weeks when we talk about unity in the church. But I just wanted to mention today that although there are aspects of the gospel narrative that are very inclusive and very tolerant, there are also aspects of that same message that are very intolerant and exclusive. It's our responsibility as Christ followers to know the difference and to be willing to stand up for the truth even when it isn't comfortable or convenient. Ultimately, that means teaching sound doctrine, which is a very biblical word. It shouldn't be something that we run from. Paul used it over and over again in his letters to Timothy and Titus. One example in 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And then in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, when Paul is describing to Titus the qualifications for an elder or a pastor in the church, he says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. 
Okay, so good doctrine is a good thing. Bad doctrine, conversely, is a bad thing. Alright? I know there have been many abuses in the name of Pentecostalism. I've, I've probably witnessed most of them in my lifetime. I've been in the Pentecostal movement for over 30 years. I've been in pastoral ministry in one capacity or another in Pentecostal churches for about 19 years. I'm not at all interested in hyped up, flash in the pan, empty emotionalism that leaves a wake of confused and usually hurt people behind. But I also don't want to run from sound doctrine, even when that doctrine confirms the ongoing bestowment and use of the charismatic gifts in the church today. Okay? So that's what we're going to look at this morning in a very responsible manner, and I hope you will glean something good from it. The term Pentecostalism in today's vernacular comes, of course, from the events at Pentecost as described in Acts chapter 2. You saw that on the screen. As the Holy Spirit descended on these 120 followers of Christ as they were waiting in the upper room. As you may well know, that was a pivotal moment in history. It was a defining moment that would indelibly transform the church for all of time, the body of Christ forever. We learn in the book of Acts that this supernatural event caused quite a stir. And for those watching this unprecedented drama unfolding before their eyes, for any of you here, you can imagine if you've ever seen anyone who's experienced the baptism in the Holy Spirit before you had, it's not hard to imagine how strange it must have seemed to the crowd that day, the things that were happening. Okay, my mother was led to the Lord by a Presbyterian minister. We went to Presbyterian church. We sang Presbyterian hymns and recited Presbyterian liturgy. We were good, well-mannered, well-behaved, very calm Presbyterians. Until my mother, that is, decided that she was searching for something more. But she didn't know what more was. Everything was going fine. Everything was great. And then mom had to go and upset the apple cart for the family. So she met several times with our minister at the Presbyterian Church and explained to him that she didn't understand exactly what she was feeling, but she felt like there was something yearning inside of her for a deeper walk with God, this deeper experience with Him. And after several meetings, he finally told her that he thought what she was looking for could be found a few miles away in a little non-denominational church. He told her that they were Pentecostal and he was pretty sure that's what she was searching for. That's amazing to me that that even happened. Yeah, really? I had no idea at that time what Pentecostal meant. I probably wasn't even saved at that point. All I knew is we were going to try out a new church. And the truth is I didn't really care because I wasn't all that attached to the old one. So the next week we show up to this church and I remember seeing guitars and drums on stage. And I thought to myself, this ought to be interesting because I was used to the piano and the organ at the Presbyterian Church. And then the band started to play, and they were good. And the music was energetic, and the people on stage seemed like they were really passionate about what they were doing. They were really into it. And I remember thinking, you know, somebody ought to go down the street and tell the Presbyterians about this place. Because <laughs> the music in here is a whole lot better than what they're singing down there. So we went back, and it was going well. Everything for a while was going great, and I was kind of enjoying it a bit. And then one day, I'll never forget, everything just sort of hit the fan. We're standing there in our pew, singing with the band and the singers. The music was particularly good that day. And out of nowhere, my mom starts to speak in tongues right next to me. You have to understand that up to that point, I had known my mother my entire life. <laughs> but nothing like that had ever come out of her mouth before. I thought she was having like a serious medical problem. And apparently the sheer look of terror on my face was obvious to people standing around me because at some point somebody from the church there kneeled over and said, your mother is having a supernatural experience. <laughs> Gee, you think so? Thank you, Captain Obvious. I can see she's having a supernatural experience. Now call an ambulance. I was wigging out. I didn't know what was going on. I had no idea. The truth is that mom was never the same after that. Over time, my mother began to witness to people with a boldness that wasn't there before, and it started with her own family. Eventually, we were all called by the Holy Spirit. Through my mother, and one by one, we ran to Jesus, because mom had the power of spirit baptism working in her and through her. So Pentecost is very real to me. 
and it is to many of you as well, I know, but let's just take a moment and look at the history of Pentecost so we understand the background. The word Pentecost means 50th or 50 days. It is celebrated seven weeks or 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. In the Hebrew culture, Pentecost was called Shavuot, or the Festival of Weeks, the Feast of Weeks, or the Festival of Weeks. It was commanded by God in Deuteronomy 16, 9, and 10, and it was celebrated 50 days after the Passover. It was originally instituted to commemorate the giving of the Torah to the nation of Israel, the law at Mount Sinai. It was one of the three harvest festivals, and it was an extremely significant celebration to the nation of Israel. It still is. It's interesting that there are parallels to be drawn between Shavuot, or the Festival of Weeks, and our view of Pentecost today, as described in Acts chapter 2. Just as God descended upon Mount Sinai and gave His law to Moses to give guidance to His people for carrying out His will, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples of Christ in Acts 2 to give power to His people for carrying out His great commission, His will. At Mount Sinai, Exodus chapters 19, 20, and 24 describe God's glory as shrouded by fire and smoke that descended upon the mountain and His voice was as thunder. In Acts 2, we see the Holy Spirit descended with tongues of fire and a mighty rushing wind. We know that the Old Testament always looks forward to the New Testament. Really, we shouldn't, have, we shouldn't call it the Old Testament and New Testament. It's one testament, but that's for another day. Moses was physically affected by his meeting with God on Mount Sinai. He had to wear a veil over his face because he'd been in the glory of God and his skin was physically shining. The 120 followers in the upper room were physically affected by their meeting with the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in tongues. So we can see all of these parallels to be drawn. But there's also a contrast in the same passages between the work of the Spirit before Pentecost in Acts 2 and his work after Acts 2 or beginning in Acts 2. We see that Jesus compared the Holy Spirit's work to the wind in John 3.8. But in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit's work is described as a mighty rushing wind. That's a significant indicator that the Spirit had come in greatly increased power more than ever before. There was a change, a shifting in the Spirit's work that day at Pentecost in Acts 2. So it, it's important that we understand the Hebraic roots of what Jesus and the Holy Spirit brought to fulfillment. Because looking back gives us a far greater understanding of the present. That's why the Old Testament still has so much significance for us today. And it's also important to recognize the power that is available to us, to all believers, today. The same power that was given at Pentecost that was not available to individuals in the Old Testament. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was the genesis of the New Testament church in Acts 2, which also marks the resumption of universal history for believers, which is how the Bible began through Genesis chapter 11, is the primary reason then that we commemorate Pentecost today. Okay, so what I'm trying to say is we can celebrate Pentecost in Acts 2 without disregarding the Old Testament counterpart of Pentecost today. People think it has to be one or the other. There's value in recognizing both. Most Christians today who aren't Messianic Jews not only don't celebrate the feast that God instituted in the Old Testament times, but most of us don't understand or know much at all about the feast. I'm no expert, but we had a Messianic rabbi come and teach our, our church in Alaska. He taught on the Passover Seder or the Passover feast, which was very helpful in understanding the prophetic symbolism in the Old Testament that pointed to Christ's sacrifice in the New Testament. Okay, I think it's totally appropriate for us in Christian churches to celebrate the actual feasts today. The Old Testament didn't disappear with the New Testament. The feasts are still very relevant and we stand to gain much in the way of understanding the scriptures when we celebrate those feasts. There's a depth of knowledge that comes with understanding and especially with celebrating the feast that is, in my opinion, very enriching even to better understanding the gospel. Okay? The church where my wife and I met and were married in Greenville celebrates some of the feasts each year still. It's a beautiful time. It's a fun time of fellowship and celebration, not this sort of legalistic drudgery that I imagined it would be. So with all that said, we're not having a feast today <laughs> to commemorate Pentecost. Actually, we are having a feast. It's a very non-Jewish feast with hamburgers and hot dogs and football. <laughs> But it's not the proper time of year for the Feast of Weeks, but maybe we'll try it when, that, when the time comes. It wouldn't be a bad idea, would it? 
because the feasts are a great tradition. And again, not for the sake of legalism, okay, but for the sake of better understanding the Word of God. For the purposes that of today's discussion, when I refer to Pentecost, we're looking at the events in Acts 2 and their relevance to us today. We'll study the other some other time, okay? Many say that Pentecost was the birth of the church. It was certainly the birth of the New Testament church that we are, in a, continu we are a continuation of here. And as I mentioned, it was the resumption of universal history, which means that his inheritance was now made available to all of mankind, not just the nation of Israel, which was his intention from the beginning. Okay, for the most part, these are widely accepted beliefs within the Christian uh, community. After that, in terms of Pentecost, all bets are off. If, if you look for across-the-board agreement among Christians on this subject and what Pentecost means for us today, it really gets a bit fuzzy for most people. So what I'd like to try and do today is qualify some fundamental Pentecostal doctrine to hopefully establish some common ground on the subject and ultimately answer the question, what's the point of Pentecost? It's a very important question to answer because depending on where we land in our beliefs about Pentecost and the subsequent giving of the charismatic gifts, the charismata, the answer is very, very different depending on the conclusion that we come to. And whatever answer we do eventually arrive at has great bearing on how we live our lives for Christ. So it's an important question to answer. What's the point of Pentecost? Okay, before we can answer that, we have to examine the events in Acts 2 and the subsequent scripture in reference to Pentecost and determine if those events have any relevance to us today other than in a historical context. Okay, so we'll do that in just a moment. Also, it would be natural to assume that in a distinctly Pentecostal church such as this one, that everyone would understand what sets us apart from non-Pentecostal churches. In reality, it's not that easy to see much difference anymore between most Pentecostal churches and most non-Pentecostal, non-liturgical, evangelical churches in our Sunday morning worship services. That's not a cheap shot, by the way. It's not. It's just the truth. I can attend a contemporary service in my friend's church where they do not believe that the charismatic gifts are still available to us today and scarcely see any outward difference between that service and one of ours. Okay? The key word, though, to pay attention to in that statement is outward. I believe there is still a difference. So here's the other side of that coin. Pentecostalism, the gifts of the Spirit, and the operation of those gifts should first and foremost be evident in the individual lives of Christians, not predominantly used as an advertisement on Sunday mornings to visitors that were Pentecostal. Do you know what I'm saying? Pentecostalism expressed truthfully does not have to equal wild and crazy displays of spirituality. Although, sometimes outwardly, strange things can happen when the gifts are being expressed. We see that all through Scripture. And that can very much be God allowing the gifts to be used as a sign to unbelievers, which was common in the New Testament. Do you know that most of the miracles and supernatural healings that occurred in the Bible occurred as a sign to unbelievers? It's an interesting study, and I wonder sometimes, honestly, if we don't see more miracles happening in our church services because there aren't enough unrepentant sinners sitting in our seats. I wonder sometimes if we just packed the place out with unsaved people, non-believers, what would happen? It's just a free thought. The point I'm trying to make is we can't assume that everyone has an understanding of the charismatic gifts just because they attend a charismatic church. However, if we're properly exercising the gifts of the Spirit in our lives and in our church, anyone who comes into this church more than once or twice should become keenly aware that something is different about us because they see and sense and experience the power of the Holy Spirit operating in us and through us. Okay? So let's turn to Acts 2 if you have your Bibles. And we're going to read a passage that's probably familiar to most of you. And we'll spend the next few minutes investigating the validity of the Pentecostal experience for us today before we answer the question, what's the point of Pentecost? Acts 2, chapter 1, uh, 
Acts chapter 2, sorry, verses 1 through 4. Here we see 120 followers of Christ waiting together for the promise of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had instructed them in Acts 1-4 before he ascended to heaven. So let's read. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this was the initial baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's skip down to verse 42. This is the genesis of the New Testament church. And notice that the supernatural gifts were continuing well beyond the day of Pentecost here. Okay, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, particularly in the epistles, the letters to the churches, we see the charismatic gifts or the charismata being expressed through believers. Okay, the term charismata is a, a, the plural form of the Greek word charisma, which means a gift from God's grace. So when we talk about charismata, we're referring to the gifts of the Spirit, which are described in several places in Scripture, and in 1 Corinthians in particular. And I'll read that quickly. 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, one says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This passage, along with several others relating to the charismata, has been a theological can of worms for the church for a long time. Do you really believe that these supernatural spiritual gifts are still available to us today and still valid for the church and its ministry. I know that some of you, probably many of you, believe that they are. I believe that they are. That's what defines us as Pentecostal. There may be some here today, in fact, there probably are some here today, who don't necessarily believe that the charismatic gifts are valid or relevant for the church today. That's called cessationism. A cessationist is one who does not believe in the continuing bestowal of the operation of the gifts. That's okay. Alright? If you feel that way, we still want you to worship here. Alright? We're still brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't want to get hung up on doctrines outside of the gospel narrative that divide and we should be united as the church. Okay? So it's okay if you don't agree with me. You hear me? I mean that. But I do desperately want all Christians to experience Holy Spirit baptism. And I'll explain why in a minute as we continue. It's why I'm preaching this sermon. There are eight or, ten, eight or ten sort of mainline arguments in support of cessationism. I spent many months researching each one of them and writing extensively in a master's program for that. And I would like to very briefly share maybe just three of those with you today because we don't have time to really go through all of them. We don't have time to really investigate these three. But we'll hit maybe the top three. And we're going to talk about what I believe Scripture says about each of these positions. After hearing this, if you're interested in the full results of that research, if you want to know more about this, let me know. Send me an email or a text or drop me a note, and I'll certainly get you uh, what I've written 
I would love to talk with you anytime about this. Me and my wife uh, both would if you just want more information, okay? So we're going to talk about the cessationist polemic. This is the cessationist uh, perspective view um, on the charismatic gifts. So the first cessationist position that often arises in this discussion is that the charismatic gifts were foundational only to the New Testament church. Okay? And they ceased to exist once the early church was established. Ephesians 2.20 is often cited in support of this argument, which says that the church was established on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. John Stott, a well-known cessationist scholar, has passed away now, wrote, Once the foundation of a building is laid, and the superstructure is being built, the foundation cannot be laid again. In other words, according to Stott, now that the early church has been formed, the apostolic and prophetic giftings are no longer needed. Richard Gaffin, another prominent cessationist a scholar, writes that it is important to grasp that the foundation here is absolute and historical in character. It does not describe particular situations which the gospel reaches for the first time, regardless of time and place. Rather, it is part of a single, comprehensive, redemptive, historical image, like house building, which pictures, in the case of the apostles as well as Christ, what is done once at the beginning of the church's history and does not bear repeating. Okay? This is, in my opinion, a perfect example of what happens when you try and build an entire doctrine on one verse taken out of context, Ephesians 2.20. If you back up and simply read a larger sampling of Ephesians, the Ephesians 2 text from verses 18 through 22, you see that Paul is clearly stating that the building process that Stott and Gaffin are referring to involves all of the saints and members of the household of God, verse 19. And that same process of building the church is ongoing when he says in verse 22, you also are being built, not have been built, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, we're all part of the ongoing process of building the church of Jesus Christ. So to say that the charismatic gifts were needed for the establishment of the church is fine. But to try and make the case that they're no longer valid because the church has already been established is untenable. Because the church is clearly still being built around the world and will continue to be until the return of Christ at the end of the age. Okay? There's a whole lot more to say in these points, but we don't have time. So let's move on. The next cessationist position is the definitive historical work of Christ. This perspective sees Pentecost in an exclusively historical light, and although admitting its value, it denies any relevance and empowering implications for the church today. Again, Gaffin expresses this idea that John's prophecy of the coming work of Christ by spirit baptism, he says, was not just one aspect, however important, but the Messiah's impending activity in its entirety. He goes on to say that spirit and fire baptism is to be nothing less than the culmination of the Messiah's ministry. It will serve to stamp that ministry as a whole, just as, in comparison, water baptism was an index for John's entire ministry. Okay, that's Gaffin's word. So the argument is that Pentecost was the culmination of Jesus' earthly ministry, and therefore it cannot and should not continue because that's over. We can agree that the gift of the Spirit was in some ways a climax of Jesus' earthly ministry. I see that. But to state that the workings of the Spirit through Christians and in post-New Testament, because it was a conclusive act of Christ's work, is a stretch at best. And in my opinion, Gaffin implicates the flaw in his own reasoning when he compares John's water baptism to Christ's spirit baptism, right? Think about it. Few people in this discussion, including cessationists, would argue against the continued relevance of water baptism for Christians today and its ongoing validity for the church. Even though water baptism was an index, in Gaffin's view, of John's ministry, a ministry that came to an end. But this is precisely Gaffin's view of the Holy Spirit's work through Christians after the Messiah's initial promise and impartation of the Spirit. It is simply not enough to say that because spirit baptism may indeed signify a type of culmination in Christ's earthly ministry, that it is therefore definitive and historical in nature only. Water baptism continues on as valid as ever. After John's ministry ended, no one is arguing that. 
And I would make the case that in the same way the Holy Spirit's baptism continues on as valid as ever after Jesus' earthly ministry ended, okay? And I hurried through those to get to this last one because this is kind of the biggie. The last cessationist position that we'll highlight today is denying a second normative work of grace. Okay, this is perhaps the most common cessationist argument being used today. The argument is that Pentecost was a one-time event, and now when we experience salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit at the same time, and there is after that no second work of the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur, who is probably the leading cessationist scholar today, states this view, and let me back up and say this. Dr. John MacArthur, Dr. S Dr. Stott, Gaffin, I uh, have an incredible amount of respect for all of these men. I have many, many of their books on my shelves. They're some of my favorite authors. Dr. MacArthur is an amazing pastor, a wonderful man who loves God and knows far more about Scripture than I know. <laughs> so, please, understand, I'm not bashing these guys, okay? I have a tremendous amount of respect and, and honor them. Uh, they're great men of God. We just disagree on points of doctrine, and that's okay. There are many other scholars that agree with my position here, okay? So just know that as I go forward. Uh, I, I say these things respectfully. I, I hope you take them that way. John MacArthur um, says, The event recorded in Acts 2 was a unique wonder. This was the first and last Pentecost for the church. Yet charismatics would make this once-for-all normative for all Christians for all the time. They claim that what happened in, the chapter, in this chapter of Acts should happen to everyone. If that were so, then everyone should also experience a mighty rushing wind and cloven tongues as a fire. If what MacArthur says is true, then every time someone experiences salvation, there would be a blinding light and a voice from heaven as they walk along the road, right? Because that's what happened to Saul on the road to, to Damascus. You see, in my opinion, the argument doesn't hold water because the tongues of fire and the mighty rushing wind were outer workings of the Holy Spirit. The inner working was the empowerment, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that took place inside those 120 people. So look, there are inner workings of the Spirit and there are outer workings of the Spirit. Outer workings are never normative. In other words, they're never a standard by which we measure the validity of an event. Inner workings are always normative. They are the standard for validity of God's working in our lives. When some people receive Christ and His redemptive work takes place in their lives, they weep. I've seen other people laugh. I've seen people fall down. Others run around. Some hear an audible voice. Others don't hear or feel anything. They just sit very still and reverent in the presence of God. The crying and laughing and falling down and running around in audible voice are all outer workings of the Spirit and aren't necessarily ever to be repeated. The inner working is the salvific, redemptive work that is the same in every case. In other words, the inner working is normative. The outer working is not. If we're going to attempt to gauge or validate a person's experience, that should always be done according to what happened on the inside, not on the outside. You see, we can have all kinds of visible and audible manifestations, but if we're not changed on the inside, it doesn't mean anything. The same is true with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When baptized in the Spirit, I've seen people laugh, and some people weep, some shout for joy. And I've seen others sit very reverently, lost in worship and communion with the Holy Spirit. No, no flash, no excitement, very calm, very reverent, a beautiful expression of love. And just prayer. The point is the outer working is different for everyone. The inner working is the same. The problem that many Pentecostals get into is that sometimes we chase the outer workings. We see someone laughing in the spirit, we think, well, we should laugh in the spirit. Someone supernaturally, we see some kind of glory cloud or something, and we think we should always see glory clouds. So we start a whole movement chasing those outer workings. When we should be chasing the inner working because that's what changes us forever. I don't doubt that some people who laugh in the Spirit or whatever have a legitimate or having a legitimate Holy Spirit experience. I've had in my 42 years of life a couple of weird things happen that I believe is the Spirit of God. It's wonderful, but weird. Generally, it's not the case. Okay? I'm simply saying don't become enamored with the outer working. 
be enamored with what the Spirit is doing on the inside of you, all right? And just one more point to address this argument that there's no second work of the Holy Spirit, and we'll end. Let's turn to Acts chapter 19, and we're going to read the first seven verses. Acts 19. Acts 19.1, it says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Let's stop there. He found some disciples. These were not unsaved men. These were followers of Christ. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Verse 2. In other words, were you filled with the Holy Spirit at the same time that you put your faith in Christ? And they said, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Clearly, it's possible to be saved and not baptized in the Spirit. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Remember, though, this was well after the events at Pentecost. Okay? And he said, verse 3, and he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling them to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. This is what they were baptized into. So they had already put their faith in Christ. They were disciples. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. When we experience salvation... It is the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Let me be clear about that. Okay? If you're saved today, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. There isn't a little Jesus in your heart. Right? I'm being silly, but it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that lives in you. But the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a separate work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I believe that there are people who receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit at the same time that they're saved. God can certainly accomplish that. And the timing of the second work is different for everyone. But unquestionably, baptism in the Holy Spirit is a separate, distinctive working, as we've seen in the passage we just read and in several other places in the New Testament. When people began to question what was going on in Jerusalem in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and said, after preaching, the promise talking about the Holy Spirit, baptism, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Acts 2.39, that's all of us. Okay, so as a Pentecostal church, we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are still valid and relevant and available to Christians today. Okay? We've just covered a lot of theological ground in a very short amount of time. And there's so much more that we can say about this. But at the end of the day, if we're just going to cut to the chase. The really important question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is the point? What's the point of all this? What's the point of Pentecost? Okay, so in the next just five minutes or so, let's finish up. Let's turn to Acts 1. We'll read verses 4 through 8. Acts chapter 1. Here we see Jesus after the resurrection, just before he ascends into heaven giving final instructions to his followers. Verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The answer to the question, what's the point of Pentecost, is in verse 8. The point of Pentecost is to receive power from the Holy Spirit so that we can carry out the mission, the call of God on our lives by spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. You see, it's not about getting the gifts of the Spirit. Paul says desire the gifts, absolutely, but not just so that we have the gifts. It's not about getting the gifts. It's about using the gifts to accomplish the Great Commission. Pentecost is all about being empowered to carry out the work of the Lord. My wife and I had to exercise the gift of faith 
and the gift of discernment when we went to Alaska. I can tell you there's a lot of faith being exercised right now as we launch this new church. The word knowledge, faith, discernment, prophetic gifts have all been in operation for us in this transition. I can tell you unequivocally that we are stepping out in many ways into a great unknown, but in full confidence because and only because we're operating in the gifts of the Spirit. He is empowering us to do the work that He's called us to do. And the same thing is true for each of you today. I believe that God calls us each to do great things for His kingdom. And through the Holy Spirit, through His baptism, He empowers us to carry out that work. But hear me, the doing of it is up to you. It isn't something where we stand there and wait for a lightning bolt, and all of a sudden there's a big S on our chest, and we can go carry out the work of the Lord. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit doesn't force himself upon us. People talk about speaking in tongues. I'm not gonna, there's no time. That's a whole sermon series in and of itself. So don't worry about it. Okay, don't worry about tongues. But I'll tell you, it's being baptized in the Holy Spirit is something the Spirit does. Speaking in tongues is something that we do. You understand the difference? The doing of this whole thing, exercising the gifts, is up to us. He doesn't force anything on us or through us, okay? It says that he gives the gifts... As He wills, it's up to Him. And then once He gives them, it's up to us to exercise those gifts. If you desire to accomplish great things for God, if you want to go further than you ever have for Him, if you desire to do more for the kingdom of God than ever before, you have to step out from whatever the status quo is for you and heed the call. The doing of it is up to you. Okay. The point of Pentecost is that He's empowering us through spirit baptism to do what would otherwise be impossible. Did you hear me? God will take you places and do things through you that you'll look back and say, how in the world did we ever accomplish that? It was only by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it on your own under your own power. We can do great things. We can be wonderful people. We can be good Christians. It's, it's wonderful. We can be saved. We can love God. But you will do so much more and go so much further in Christ and for His kingdom with the power of Holy Spirit baptism working in your life. And my wife and I are a testament to that. And please understand that we also believe here that God is a God of balance and order. And this is a significant note for me. Jesus spent a couple of years with his disciples before he sent them out to exercise the gifts of the Spirit. Why is that? Because character is more important than the gifts. Having the right motivations for ministry, operating in love is more important than having all the gifts combined. Don't take my word for it. Read 1 Corinthians 13. Paul spells it out. We don't have time to read it right now, but with that in mind, I want you to know I'm more interested in developing godly character in our fellowship than seeing folks operating in the spiritual gifts. Don't get me wrong. There will be Sundays soon when we invite folks up, probably during the worship time. I do it all. I do it a lot. And I pray for healing for them and for strength and provision and whatever the needs are. We'll pray as a church for the gift of faith as we walk through difficult times together. I want to see the gifts operating in this church, but not at the expense of godly character. So I'm asking you, and I'll say this from time to time, particularly when it comes to the spoken gifts, the prophetic gifts, the words of knowledge and so forth. Please come to me before you share that publicly in this congregation. If you trust me as your pastor and overseer of this church, I'm asking you to please come to me first. If you feel the Lord's giving you something to share with this body, that's a good thing. I encourage that. But I want to ask you to take the time first to pray over that and write that down. And then bring it to me at an appropriate time before or after a service. Okay? Or during a greeting time. People get upset with me when I say this. But don't be offended about writing down a prophetic message. The greatest prophecies of all time have been written down in this book. Okay? Write it down. Pray over it. Bring it to me. I'll pray over that. I'll vet that by the word of God. And then if there's agreement that it's something that is scriptural and edifying to this church, then I'll either share it or I'll ask you to share it at an appropriate time. Okay? Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit 
but it's usually surrounded in Scripture by far more passages addressing the need for the church to function with order and godly character. Okay? I gave this speech in Alaska at our church, and it ruffled some people's feathers because it's a Pentecostal church that's been around a long time. And, and sometime I'll talk about spontaneous giftings. There's evidence of that in Scripture, and that's not a bad thing. It's just we're starting a new work, and we don't all know each other yet. Okay? So we'll talk about that later. But I gave this speech in Alaska when I sort of took over pastoring the church. And a couple of weeks later, an elderly woman in the church came up to me during the seat time and handed me a note. She said, the Lord woke me up at 3 a.m. I feel like he gave me this to share with the church. And she was doing what I had asked them to do. And I said, thank you. You know, I'm going to pray over this. I'm going to take this seriously and I'll get back to you. And she said, okay. And I went back to my office that day and I read it and I opened up the word and I went through and, and sort of cross-referenced some things and prayed over it. And clearly, it was a clear word from the Lord for our church about repentance and him renewing us. It's a wonderful word of God. But I also knew immediately that he gave that to her to give to me to be read three weeks later because I knew what I was preaching in my series. I knew it was a perfect time to share this. And so I called her and I said, Bonnie, please don't be upset with me, but it's going to be a few weeks before I share this, but I know when I'm supposed to share it. She said, it's fine. Three weeks came. I preached the greatest message of all time. To me, to me. And I gave an altar call, fully expecting everyone in the church to run forward, and nothing happened. And I was going to read her prophecy at the end as a confirmation of what God was going to do, because I wrote this awesome sermon, and it, it kind of fell flat. And so I'm standing there, and I thought, hmm, maybe I should, before we dismiss, you know. So I said, hey guys, uh, three weeks ago, the Lord woke Bonnie character up. At 3 a.m. and gave her this word, and she gave it to me, and I'm just going to read it to you. It's the word of the Lord, and I read it to them. And then I said, is, is there anybody that wants to change their mind about the altar call? Nine people came forward and got saved that day in that service. You see, I can, I can preach the greatest sermon in the world and be funny and say all the right things, but when, when the Lord God speaks, ministry happens. So hear the word of the Lord today. Answer the call in your life. Don't be afraid, no matter how big or impossible it may seem, because God will give you wisdom and discernment and faith and knowledge and power to move forward by His Holy Spirit. But you have to choose to take that step, okay? We're taking that step. We sold most of our belongings. We moved 4,500 miles away from people in a place that we love, from a very secure position and into a situation where there are no jobs, no income, no insurance. But you know what? It's no problem. Because we're doing so by His power, not our own. And that is the best place you could possibly hope to be. And each step of the way, He's been providing income. And He's been providing fellowship. And He's been providing friendship. This church has only been officially opened for three weeks. But I can tell you that as far as we're concerned, you are our family. And there's no other place we'd rather be. And there's no one else that we'd rather be with. Our prayer for you, for us, is and will continue to be that we would lean not on our own understanding, but that we would continue to look to the Lord for strength and empowerment more than ever before for ourselves individually and for this church. And that in the coming months and years, we would step out in power and accomplish truly amazing things for God as a part of this family that we call a country church. Can you receive that this morning? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? If you're here today and you don't know the Lord personally, maybe you do, but you haven't been actively following Him lately. There aren't many Sundays around the year that I won't do this. Because it's my greatest privilege to invite those to come to the Lord or come back to the Lord. So I just want to ask you, in a moment to raise your hand, you can put it right back down. And I want to be clear about this. I am not going to ask you to come forward and I'm not going to call you out. I'm not trying to embarrass anyone or make a spectacle of you. I'm simply asking you to acknowledge your desire to take a step forward toward Jesus Christ this morning. And I need you to raise your hand so I know if, if there's a need to pray this prayer. And we'll all pray together as a congregation. So I'm asking, is there anyone here today who would say, you know, that's me. I, I've known the Lord for years, but I'd like to take a step forward toward Him more than I ever have. 
Or, you know what, I'm coming back to the Lord. I've never prayed that prayer. doesn't matter. I, I pray this prayer often, in fact. So if so, if there's anyone here, you, would you just raise your hand and you can put it right back down. Is there anybody? And I won't drag it out. Yep. Is there anyone else? We've had people every week raising their hands. Yep. There's more. Anyone else? Anybody else? You can just slip up your hand and put it right back down. Anyone else? The Holy Spirit is in this place and He's always waiting for us to come to Him. Not so something weird can happen. So that He can change us from the inside out forever. So I want to ask you guys if you would, everybody, let's pray this prayer together. We're going to pray it out loud. Okay? I just ask you to repeat after me. It's a simple prayer of repentance. A simple prayer of coming back to following Christ. Lord, I admit to you today. Lord, I admit to you let's, today. Let's say it again. Lord, I admit to you today. Lord, I admit to you today. That I've sinned in my life. I have sinned in my life. And I believe that you gave up your life for me. And I believe that you gave up your life to me. That I might be forgiven for my sins. And have eternal life. And have eternal life. So I ask you now. And I ask you now. To forgive me for all my sins. Forgive me for all my sins. Save me and make me new. Save me and make me new. And I ask you now, Jesus. I ask you now, Jesus. To be Lord over my life. To be Lord over my life. And live in me. And live in me. And I commit to follow you. And I commit to follow you. The rest of my life. The rest of my life. With your head still bowed, if we could just close with this prayer. If you're open to the Holy Spirit moving in your life, possibly greater than He ever has before, I'm just going to ask you to pray this with me in your own words. No need to repeat anything after me. You don't have to pray out loud. You just pray this in your heart with me if you would. Lord, we ask you today to help us to be sensitive to your Spirit's leading. In the coming days and weeks, as we seek you together, help us to be open to the baptism in your Holy Spirit. Lord, if there's more for us than what we currently have, may your voice ring clear and true in our hearts. And may we respond by completely yielding ourselves to you, by allowing you to fill us, whether it's for the first time or all over again. This is your church, and we are your people.